This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week on The Takeout, COVID-19 and the stimulus bill with Oregon Republican Congressman Greg Walden. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Living through these COVID-19 times, what's that mean? It means I'm working from home like many, though not all of you are. Healthcare heroes out there, God bless you. Thank you for the work you're doing. We hope help is on the way in whatever way you need it. And for all others who are working to keep essential parts of our economy going, thank you for what you're doing. Special guest this week, Republican Congressman Greg Walden, 2nd District of Oregon, elected 1998 for two years, 2017 to 2019. He was the chairman of the incredibly powerful Energy and Commerce Committee, a lot of involvement in healthcare legislation and other things. We'll get to that and those kind of details in just a second. But first, Congressman Greg, how are you? It's good to have you with us. How is your family? How is your health? How are you coping with this new normal? Hey, we're we're blessed. We're we're healthy. We're we're doing well. My wife and I are together uh, and uh, and working through all this uh, in isolation as we're supposed to be. Um, you know, and it's uh, I think all Americans are trying to, to work their way through this and do the right things and do the social distancing and all. But it's sure not in our nature, Major. You know, you want to get out, especially somebody from the Northwest. We even get out and hike when it rains and uh, it's hard. It's hard to be cooped up. But we have to do this for the good of, of our country, our, our citizens, especially those who have health issues and are older. And I want to ask you, Congressman, not only about what you just said, I want you to emphasize that point in just a second. And as a means by which to get that, earlier this week, in a shocking White House task force briefing on the coronavirus, the medical advisors to the president of the United States said, even with mitigation strategies, the modeling suggests, and it's a suggestion, a projection, it's not destiny, but that 100,000, possibly as many as 240,000 Americans could die of COVID-19. What was your personal reaction to that? And do you think those numbers portray a kind of imaginable future for this virus and this country? Yes, I do. I, I have great faith in uh, in the president's team, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks. I, I've known and worked with Dr. Fauci for probably close to, to 15, 20 years and, uh, you know, he's been on the forefront of tackling these uh, pandemics around the world, whether it's Ebola, whether it was AIDS, whether it's uh, Zika. And I've never known him uh, to get it wrong. He is really, really smart. And, and he's a national treasure, as I think we're all coming to understand. And so when he says that's the, those are the numbers, I, I was on the phone with him and he said, look, th- those are the numbers. Now it can change as we get new data. And so those numbers don't hold me to the exact numbers because, you know what, if the social distancing really works, if we get an antiviral that really works, we can bend that down. This thing could also potentially go the other way. As you know, they also showed a chart that said if we do nothing, you're into the one to two million Americans that could die. And uh, we we can't let that happen. And so I, you, you think about the number of people that were, were killed in World War II, Americans, you think about the number of people killed in Vietnam. And I mean, these are these are really hard to get your head around numbers. Um, and so we have to do everything that, that makes sense, 
that's based on the science and the facts and dictated by the course of this novel uh, coronavirus. And you really keyed on a vital word. It's not coronavirus. It's not COVID-19. It's novel, meaning it's new. And because it's new, the learning curve is steep and the learning curve will go in different directions as more data is assembled, not just in China, South Korea, Singapore, Italy, France, Germany, but in the United States itself. And the data will maybe tell us things as it evolves because, again, that key word, novel, it's new. And a lot of the things that we're adapting to are difficult among, I think, and I want to get your opinion on this, Congressman, among the most difficult things is that new thing that the information may evolve before our very eyes. And that doesn't mean that last week's information was bad or ill-intentioned. It just means there's new data. I couldn't agree more. Let me remind your listeners that on the 14th of January, the WHO reported, based on the evidence in China, there was no clear human-to-human contamination going on. So you think about that's the World Health Organization uh, on the 14th of January said to the world, look, we're not seeing any evidence of human-to-human transmission of this disease. And I think when you get that kind of a, a, a report, initial, based on what they knew then, you go, okay, that's good to know. So it's not going to spread community to community. So, you know, there's, you had to eat the food or whatever it was um, in order to get this. All right, that, that sets your mind. But then you realize that wasn't the case. And then later we find out um, in China that, that the, um, they were not counting the asymptomatic people who turned up yes on their tests. We do that in the U.S., most countries do. But at that time, they just weren't. I think they were overloaded. Uh, and they just were counting the ones that were testing positive and, and were sick. Um, but clearly, we know now, again, we've all learned, asymptomatic people can also shed the disease, and, and, and they don't even know they have it, which is why we've got to race through science to get to where we have the right capabilities to test people uh, much more broadly to know if, if somebody's carrying it and doesn't know they have it. Um, there's a lot in this space we got to work on. No question. And as you said, this idea, this concept, and we're learning all these words and they're becoming part of our evolving vernacular shedding. Uh, You, you, you have it, you don't know you have it and yet you're spreading it. You're, you're someone who is through no intention of your own shedding those things that spread the virus, which is why this concept, another thing that's part of our vernacular social distancing is not just, um, an abstraction. It is, as I understand this, the central means by which we can combat this today. Major, you're right. And, and in the briefings uh, on the Energy and Commerce Committee and before the whole House, um, we got to this point, um, I would say weeks, if not months ago now, um, where the health officials said, look, we have no treatment for this. We have no vaccine for this. That means we go to the very basic public health standards that we know can help. And that was, you know, washing your hands till they're raw, practically, Um, you know, the full 20 seconds using hand sanitizer. And then this notion of social distancing. Now, we all kind of knew somebody was in your space or not. Right. And, And your space is a lot closer in New York than it is out in rural eastern Oregon. But the, the point is now we're all told it has to be six feet. And then there's some data out of MIT that says, actually, this may go 27 feet. Well, you, you know, how are you going to work in that environment? How do you? Well, here we are. We're all working out of our, our home offices and our basements and, and, and wherever else. But none of us none of us ever thought we would be in this situation. I mean, I, I have a stepbrother who contracted polio. I had an uncle who eventually died of tuberculosis, you know, and those were diseases that were conquered. And we really hadn't seen anything like this in the United States. We worried about Ebola um, as we, and we still should, by the way, that's a whole nother set of issues, but that is still a huge, huge threat to humanity. But we never thought it would come to, you know, Hood River, Oregon, or, you know, New York City or, or wherever. Um, it just wasn't in our, our mindset that we couldn't stop this, fix this, help this and limit this. And by golly, there are lessons to be learned out of this one end to the other of things that worked, things that didn't, mistakes that were made, things we never want to repeat again. And 
And, uh, you know, there, there, were F, there were some estimates, uh, Major, that uh, by some that said our national stockpile should have three and a half billion face masks. Now, they would tell you that was way overblown. There were others that said it should be 600 million. At the end of January, we had 16 million um, because the national stockpile was supposed to be for an outbreak in some location and boom, you sent it out there. It wasn't to supply the entire country for months. And Congressman, we're going to get on the other side of this break to some of those lessons learned and some of the ways to find out some of the things we still need to discover about what we did right and what we did wrong. I'm Major Garrett, our special guest, Republican Congressman Greg Walden of Oregon, back in a moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our guest, Greg Walden, Congressman, Republican, 2nd District of Oregon. He's mentioned a little bit, but just if you look at a map, just think of most of eastern Oregon, east of Portland and Salem that goes all the way to the border. It's a huge district. Uh, Congressman, it's great to have you with us. You mentioned in segment one some of the lessons we're going to have to learn. Some of your Democratic colleagues, Adam Schiff among them, has suggested a 9-11 commission to do that kind of work. Is that what's necessary? I, I don't think it takes that. Um, I think we're, we have the, the skill set in our committees. And in fact, um, the Energy and Commerce Committee, on, on the, I'll just speak for the Republican side as the Republican leader of the committee, I've dedicated several of my staff already to do a, a sort of joint process of trying to find out as we go along what's working, what's not, and why, and fixing it, but also then with an eye toward the fall. Because there there is evidence that we will not necessarily have um, an antiviral drug uh, or the ability to uh, knock this completely down. And we know we won't have a vaccine for at least a year. So if this comes back in the fall, I want to make sure that that we have lessons learned before that and and frankly in real time make sure that we have what we're going to need come the fall and the winter because traditionally a coronavirus and a flu virus um, and I'm not trying to equate the two but uh, it's the same concept they they tend to die off in in the warmer summer months and come back in the colder wetter months and that's kind of the cycle and and so we'll see in the southern hemisphere as we go into summer what happens down there it should give us a little break here uh, to to kind of get ourselves uh, regenerated and ready to go. But I, I'll tell you, some of the American companies that have stepped up and gone from making cars to making ventilators and, you know, from doing whatever they were doing to making the N95 masks or construction companies, little ones have donated the masks they had after Trump administration, you know, waived the rules and said those N95 masks used on a construction job will work in a in a, in a health setting too, you know, we've all come together as a country in, in pretty good form. And so I don't think you need a 9-11 commission. I think you do need a review and, and it shouldn't be partisan and, and vicious. It ought to be factual and, and really help understand where we got it right, where we got it wrong. Um, pandemics shouldn't be partisan. The fixing the problem shouldn't be partisan. Um, we just need to get it right for the American people. So burrowing down just a little bit on that, of course, one of the most memorable, possibly the most memorable phrase of the 9-11 Commission report was lack of imagination at the level of the federal government. Yeah, yeah. A central problem here? It shouldn't have been. It doesn't seem to me. No, that we sh- I, I, I don't think so. And I, I was in. I was literally standing in front of the Capitol when the plane hit the Pentagon and we were told to run. 
Um, and, and I sat through the briefings of the 9-11 Commission and as chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, put into law the final recommendations for a, a nationwide uh, uh, emergency communication, digital communications commission uh, system known as FirstNet, um, which made Spectrum available and all kinds of things. So, I mean, I, I went through that period. Um, I, that's not this. This really is, is much a tighter look at did the pandemic all hazard preparedness that we had in place work? Was it adequate in the testing realm? What worked, what didn't? And I think we have a pretty good idea. Remember, CDC went right. Once the Chinese put the genome up on January 10th, um, then CDC went right ahead and began developing the diagnostic test. Um, and they, they got it done in pretty fast order. And as a result, they, they shipped it out. Then they discovered one of the three reagents did not perform correctly. They didn't end up needing that. They brought them back. They fixed it. They shipped. Nobody saw, remember during that period too, is when WHO was saying there's no human to human transmission according to what we're seeing in China. And it doesn't affect young people and other healthcare leaders we hear from today were saying, I think we'll be okay. Well, it turns out none of that was, was what happened. So I think we can go back and say, okay, now let's look at the worst case scenario what should we be doing? But I think we were spending $500 million a year on the national stockpile. You look at some states, I think it was California, when they went and got all their mass out of their state stockpile, it turned out they'd all expired. So I right. mean, let's look at that. Why? Now, it's because maybe the rubber bands that or whatever the, is they have to hold the mask on, it's not the mask itself. But you can't have that give out in the middle of a procedure. No. So I think we all need to go, what worked? What did, how did the distribution system work? Did we have enough ventilators or not? Did we get them there in time? Um, there's a lot to learn here and to plan for going forward. But we just, you know, it's been 102 years since the Spanish flu hit. Right. Let, let's talk about two things here and now that are part of the ongoing drama and the ongoing stressors for those on the front lines. One, testing. Uh, yes. we, can't, we can't get to surveillance, meaning we can't create bodies of community data about who has or who hasn't or antibody reviews or anything that is right. central to us understanding what the potential scope is and who can actually possibly go back to work. One. Two, it appears to me, Congressman, I listened to all the White House task force briefings. Numbers are constantly placed before the American public about things produced, and yet there are, it appears, logistical log jams yeah. that though they're produced, they're shipped, they're not where they need to be nearly as fast. Address those two things, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, and I, I would take it a third step, Major. I think, I think you've hit on all the right topics, and I'll start with the third. Just because they produced them and shipped them didn't mean we had the backroom technicians and equipment to process them. So one of the na nation's biggest labs that does this for a living ends up being upwards of 160,000 tests behind because they weren't staffed up. They didn't have the equipment that could produce results for that many tests. So, so that's part of it. We don't, we're not set up to handle a pandemic of this magnitude and, and our traditional daily healthcare needs don't require anywhere close to this. And so we were probably system-wide running too tight, clearly, to handle something like this. Now they're catching up. And now we have Abbott Labs coming forward with a test they can get results in five minutes. That gets to your issue about surveillance. That's where we have to get. If you listen to Dr. Gottlieb or Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks, um, they're all saying the same thing. Before we can really begin to get some level of our freedom back, we have to be able to do almost uh, constant and ubiquitous testing because of this novel issue of people that are asymptomatic, but spreading. And so you can't, if you open the doors too soon, if you say, you know, we're there um, too soon and you can't measure and you don't have an antiviral, you'll just repeat this cycle and none of us wants that to happen. That's why, you know, the president's team has consistently said the virus and science are going to dictate the timelines. And, and that's where we're at. When the president says, as he did very recently, I think we've done a fantastic job. Do you agree? Look, it's been a, a government-wide, all-hands-on-deck um, effort. 
and and I've I've talked to the president directly and the vice president, and I, I'm because of our committee's jurisdiction in in uh, communications frequently with the head of the FDA. I'll tell you, Major, I, the these people, uh, the Dr. Cadlick that runs Asper, um, I talked to him uh, Monday morning at seven a.m. my time. He told me he had not had a day off in 69 days. I was talking with Dr. Hahn, the head of the FDA, over the weekend. We were texting and talking. And, you know, I, I mean, they have really in their teams, their dedicated public servants out there in our healthcare. Program, everybody's throwing everything they have at it. I've never seen an administration move faster to get economic relief out to our communities. Uh, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, I saw him at the White House uh, with the day the president signed this bill into law, the phase three bill. He said, I may be the craziest treasury secretary, but I'm committing to get that 7A loan relief to small businesses by next Friday. Guess what? He didn't do it. He got, he got, it'll be out Friday, but the rules were out by, by Wednesday night. And so, I mean, they have done things that the government never does in this fast and order. And so, yeah, I think they have. I think they've really leaned forward. They've tried to do everything they can. And I'll take like the Defense Act the president invoked. Um, they didn't need to use that, I'm told, in large measure because the companies were, when they put out an RFP for 500 million N95 masks, they suddenly had not one company, 3M, bidding to make it. They suddenly had three companies. So they didn't need to order anybody to do it. Mm -hmm. The private sector's really stepped up. And so, I, you know, I, I think they have done a really good job. I remember when he put the travel ban on China on back in, in uh, early January. Remember, he created this task force, I right. think, on the, on the 30th of January and, and put the travel ban on and was criticized for doing that. So, you know, I, I, sure, there are lessons to learn. But boy, they've been all. When, when have you ever seen a president do a daily press briefing? You know, I mean, it, it's phenomenal. That's the voice of Greg Walden, Republican congressman from Oregon, back for segment three of The Takeout with Major Garrett. That's me in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Greg Walden, Republican congressman from the 2nd District of Oregon, is our special guest. Congressman, continuing the line of conversation we just had, and look, the reason I asked you if you thought when the president says, I think we've done a fantastic job, you must appreciate that some Americans looking at the projections of dead, the projections of those who will be sickened by this disease, the frantic stressful situation that frontline healthcare workers are experiencing may look at that scenario, may look at, forget that scenario, the reality and say, wait a minute, we're the most powerful, economically yeah. vi vital country in the world, the most technologically advanced, and this is happening before our very eyes. How can that be a fantastic job? Well, I think there's a difference between uh, uh, what we would hope we would be able to do as the most powerful country in the world and when reality hit the road, what we are literally capable of doing. Remember, we have supply chain vulnerability issues. They extend to our drug supply. They extend to um, all kinds of things. And many of us have been on both sides of the aisle banging the drum on this. And, and you know, you think about this president who's worked hard to bring manufacturing jobs back here and all that. Well, turns out, guess where a lot of this equipment was being made? China. China. I mean, you go on Amazon. You go try and find it on Amazon. Where do they source it? China. You wait in line. The government's no different until the president stepped in and, and, and put the, the, the Defense Act in, although he didn't have to use it in this mm -hmm. case. But so he began calling companies and saying, you got to switch. You got to start making ventilators. You've got to start making uh, uh, masks. We need, America needs you. There wasn't like a a supply off in, in somewhere. They sent a C-17 to Italy to, to get um, uh, some testing swabs, 850,000 test swabs because we were short. They couldn't find an airplane, a commercial carrier because they weren't flying. They sent a military C-17 over and got 850,000 test swabs and flew them back here. So I, I, I think it's fair to say was America... Did we have the capability to step up and overnight 
produce 5 million, 500 million mass? No. But now we have an RFP out to produce 500 million mass, and there are four bidders that are going about doing that. Did we have a five-minute test from Abbott? No, we do now. So, I mean, yeah, there was a lag because this was a novel virus. We were told it wouldn't spread human to human. Then all of a sudden, not only does it, but it spreads among people who don't even show symptoms. That's, that's a stealth fighter in a biological war that we've never had to deal with before. Were you comfortable last week when the president talked about the country reopening as soon or aspirationally as soon as Easter? Because that clearly was not what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Bricks uh, were thinking, and Burks rather, forgive me, Dr. Burks were thinking the expression on their faces showed it. And I know the president right. had to sort of come around and you've dealt with him a lot more than I have, but I've dealt with him at a certain a level, at oh, a yeah. certain amount of frequency. He does take time to come around. And he always, like he said recently, is an optimist. and He doesn't want to be negative. And he wants to be on the sunny side of the hill. But what he said last week does not comport at all with what has been coming out this week about the death toll, the sickness and the malignant nature of what we're coping with. And nor does does it comport with what he's saying this week. I mean, he he was it was a a very somber, sober um, discussion at, at the briefing uh, a few you know a little while ago when he talked about uh, how these death rates could go up. And so I look, the guy's an optimist. You know, he always has been, and I think he was trying to be hopeful. And and I think, uh, you know, now it's it's more evident than ever. This is worse than even we thought a week ago or two or three or four or five. And he's he's pretty locked down in terms of the seriousness of this disease. And he's telling people that. And uh, and so I I think what we have to focus on is what else do we need to do to win this war? And that is investing in the research. That is getting the barriers out of the way if somebody's come up with an antiviral overseas that works, then, you know, Dr. Hahn at FDA is doing everything he can to make sure it's safe and then getting it available. You know, they're, they're putting in the stockpile um, uh, hydrochloroquine uh, and chloroquine to make sure in part that if that does work as part of a cocktail that, that we'll have it in the national stockpile. The president's, you know, ordered that. The vice president's been doing a great job in this space. And so I, I think Look, uh, America needs a little optimism here and there. That was aspirational. Um, and uh, we know the reality is, for most of the countries, much different. But you also have this these hot spots where, you know, they're going to be locked down for a while in New York City and, and in these states. And, and now that we know it can transmit uh, asymptomatically, that uh, we're, we're, it's just a different evolving problem. It's, it's hard to admit that that's what we're facing. Most of us can't appreciate what our ancestors went through um, in, with some of these diseases and, and, and even millennial ago, but um, we're here. We got it. We got to all go. Okay. Distancing matters. Follow the science. Distancing matters. Follow the science. What about restrictions that are more emphatic than the ones we are getting adjusted to now? Meaning the president said at a recent briefing, he was looking into, that's his direct quote, looking into possible prohibiting air and rail travel between hotspots. Do you think we should think differently and perhaps more aggressively about limiting travel to limit the spread? Well, and some states are doing that. And again, you know, you take a district like mine, just to put it in perspective, my district would stretch from Ohio to uh, to uh, the, the, the Atlantic Ocean. And so, you know, I, I could put a whole bunch of Eastern states inside mine. So state by state, you may need it. I mean, you look at Connecticut and what's flaring up there because people commute in and out of Manhattan. Um, they may need a different level of restrictions than parts of my district where there's one person for every nine miles of power line. So, I mean, I, I think we have to realize our country is huge and vast. And once we get this ability to do very rapid and, and very ubiquitous testing, then then we'll have a lot more ability for the to, to drive that decision making. But guys, you wouldn't want people, you know, that are under quarantine in, in New York City flying to Florida and back every week. I, I think if I'm in Florida, I'm wondering why that's a good idea. 
but maybe there are some people that, that are doing the kind of business where you still need to be able to get back and forth. And that could be healthcare providers that could be, you know, flying in supplies. I mean, I don't know. There aren't many people on the planes. I'll tell you. No, that. they're not. No, they're not. Uh, talk to my audience a little bit about what you imagine Congress will look like for the next few weeks or a few months. Uh, do we have to accommodate ourselves, meaning the Congress, not me, but the nation, because Congress represents the nation to the concept of, field hearings done online or through some sort of uh, internet portal? Do you vote remotely? Do you not gather in Washington for meetings as you historically have? What are you imagining the work of Congress will look like for the next four to six to eight to 10, 12 weeks? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's even different than that. Uh, Our rules, according to our parliamentarians, uh, don't allow for um, uh, remote hearings. We we can do field hearings, but you can't do them online. There's no provision to vote online. There's no provision to uh, vote on legislation and committee online. Um, that would require us all to go to Washington and change our rules. Um, and as you saw, we had a member that required a quorum of the House, under, and that's legitimate under the Constitution. I, I We can get into that argument, but um, there was a quorum there, but I've never seen it Major, you've seen the inside of the U.S. House. Dr. Monahan and, and his team enforced us sitting at least six feet apart. And if you got closer than that to a member, he came around and said, could you please um, more socially distance? And I've never seen this. Members of the House were seated in the galleries six feet apart. Um, and, and of course, no visitors. And, and so it was pretty easy to count to show we had a quorum. That's why that process moved quickly. So I don't, with the states of Virginia and Maryland locked down, I think until June and and the District of Columbia, I don't know why it would make sense for 435 of us to fly in from all over the country and whatever we've been around and then all get together in close proximity. Um, That doesn't seem to be following the science, but we can do a lot of work and we are uh, among ourselves on the phone. I, I do a at least a weekly, if not twice weekly, uh, conference call with all my Republican members on the committee, and we we've, we've got 25 members, and with my leadership team, and with the, the chairman of the committee, Chairman Pallone, and I have been in conversation, and our staffs are talking to each other, and and so there's a lot of discussions going on. And we'll pick up on the other side of the break. What may be required if to hear you talk about that. The limitations, can there be a phase four legislation if you're not there to vote on it or can't be there to vote on it? I'm Major Garrett. Greg Walden is our special guest back for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Republican Congressman Greg Walden of Oregon is our special guest. Congressman, you were talking about the... uh, Stay-at-home orders in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the state of Maryland, Washington, D.C., and how that makes it very difficult to imagine Congress reassembling anytime soon. If Congress can't reassemble, and as you said in the previous segment, under parliamentarian rules of the House, you can't vote remotely, you can't conduct committee hearings remotely, how does any other future legislation become drafted through the House of Representatives under those circumstances? Well, there's there are a lot of discussions going on. And frankly, um, there's a lot of work that's been teed up and ready to go uh, in our committees prior to this uh, shutdown, if you will. Um, and so our staffs are talking, members are talking to each other. Um, there, there are lots of conference calls going on. It's not the, the sort of open meeting, robust, public accessible uh, legislating that I prefer. Um, certainly, I believe in the process and hearings and, and open hearings and markups and all that, but we're in a novel time to use that word more than we should probably. But we are. And and so we're trying to figure out what's the country need. And, and you know, so we're, we're working on these issues on supply chain vulnerabilities on, you know, what, what we'll need going into the fall, perhaps infrastructure. There's There's a lot we can be doing. And in some cases, we've passed bills in the House. You know, we ought to take care of surprise billing so consumers aren't getting gouged 
uh, with surprise medical bills. We need to fully fund our community health centers. They're, they're actually Republican and Democrat leaders, myself, uh, Senator Lamar Alexander, Senator Murray, Senator, uh, Congressman Pallone and I, the four of us have agreed to a, a, a bill to stop surprise billing. That's when one out of five going to an emergency room gets a bill not covered by their insurance. Um, you know, there's horror stories about that. Uh, we've got legislation to fix it, and we've got legislation to fund our community health centers that, by the way, run out of funding in November. So there's a lot of effort we can we can do and come together on. And I think you work that out, and then when it when the scientists and the and the and the doctors tell us it's okay to get back together under whatever the new norm is, and it won't be the old norm, um, then we can get back together and we can do our our regular order and, and pass legislation. Let me ask you something very specific since you raised the issue of insurance, health insurance. A president was recently asked and said he is, again, this is his phrase, not mine, his phrase, looking into reopening the Affordable Act exchanges so people who are in a position where they earn more, which means they're disqualified from Medicaid, but they are not old enough to qualify for Medicare, can find a means by which to obtain insurance to get them through this particularly scary time. The president said he's looking into that. He didn't say yes or no. Do you believe that's something that this administration should do? Reopen the exchanges so people can get on there and get insurance at whatever cost they can find. Well, you know, it's it's a really good question, Major. And I, I haven't delved into the ramifications of that because often the policies are set on, you know, sort of a calendar year basis. Um, but but it's an issue that's come up along the way that if you miss that window for whatever circumstance, then you're basically out of luck for a year. And, and I think what we want here is to focus on how do we keep people insured? How do we get them insured? How do we make that insurance affordable? It's all those arguments. But um, I, I'm open to having that discussion. I just would need to know uh, on my own to sort of what does that mean if you do it? Because, you, you know, you got to make sure the plan works and that it's affordable. You're experienced in politics. You were the chairman of the Republican uh, Congressional Campaign Committee t- for two terms. You've been to a political convention or two, I'm willing to bet. Uh, do you imagine that either of the two national party conventions will be able to occur in any recognizable form in this summer? No. I, I, you know, it's funny you asked that. I was having that conversation today with somebody, and I, I, I just don't see how that makes sense. It might. I mean, again, science is going to dictate this, but my gosh, you, when you look at major sporting events and concert events and everything else that are canceled way starting in, you know, you're clear into June now based on what we know. And, and if this virus is peaking in May in Washington state and somewhere or in Oregon and, and somewhere around there and, you know, you still that's the peak. And then you got the tail of people in the hospital for weeks and then you got asymptomatic. Will we have the test? I I just I'm looking at that thinking I, I don't see how you you hold these conventions uh, with, you know, tens of thousands of people there. Uh, are we going to abandon social distancing for for a convention? I, I don't see how it, I, I just if you can delay the Olympics a year. I think uh, the conventions get thrown out the window now. How you nominate somebody and, and go through that process, I, it's going to have somebody better be thinking about that because we yeah, have it, to have election on time. Right, of election. course. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. And it'll be up to the uh, National Committee Rules Committees to do that. And they can do that. Uh, they have method, methodologies to meet and conduct what their rules are. And whatever they decide is what the conventions will look like. But it seems to me, to your point, having been to many conventions, uh, Republican and Democrat, there's one thing that's exactly the same about both. They start at 7 a.m. and they go till 3 in the morning, and there's gatherings every hour from 7 a.m. to 3 a.m., sometimes a little bit longer than 3 a.m. But the point is, there's gatherings relentlessly. It's nothing if not anti-social distancing. You know, you just can't do it. Political petri dish, and <laughs> yes. usually in the summer where it's warm and humid and sweaty and people on top of each other. Oh my God! My now I would I would have to confess something. My favorite convention was the one I listened to on my outdoor speakers while barbecuing a steak on my deck in Oregon. I got all the speeches I needed to hear. It was a beautiful summer evening. And, you know, it just was what it was. Um, I went to to several of them, too. But I'm with you. It's, oh, man, the masses of humanity and just people right in your face and they're spitting and talking. And, oh, man, it's just the worst environment. 
spread disease. So let's let's talk let's talk practically about elections. Uh, you've got a primary in Oregon. There'll be no problem with that. Why? Because Oregon votes by mail. It has, and there's some delightful history about that, dating back to 1981 when the first counties in Oregon were allowed to do it. By 1987, every county for local elections was doing it. The first presidential election by mail. 2000 in Oregon, 80% participation. You guys have this down, the first state to pave this way. Do you believe, Congressman, based on that experience, that vote by mail for the November general election is something we should think actively about and possibly just assume and plan for? Uh, well, here's here's the deal on that, Major. I Look, it, it works in Oregon, but we had a long ramp up to that. And there were some hiccups along the way. You have to have a voting system where, I mean, I remember my wife signed the back of her her uh, uh, return envelope and her signature had changed because we were in the radio business. She signed all these affidavits of advertising, hundreds of them every month, and her beautiful signature became something much different than what had been on file. They made her go into the county courthouse and prove that that was her new signature. So we've got good surveillance and now we have a statewide database. And so I think it's pretty clean in terms of that. Not every state's ready to do that. And these are always state obligations. And I, I just, on top of everything else state governments are dealing with, I cannot imagine telling them, oh, guess what, in, in you know six months, or less, um, you're going to have to do a vote by mail election where you've never contemplated it before. I think that could be, I mean, look at the Iowa caucuses where they couldn't even count delegates uh, with a computer program that in theory was going to work. I, I, that's nothing against vote by mail. It works in my state. I'm, I'm, it, it, it does, but gosh, thinking I'm going to mandate that on every state who may or may not have the resources. Uh, I think you'd, I think it's prescription for a worse disaster. That's the voice of Greg Walden. And that wraps up our conversation for our radio audience this week's episode of The Takeout. But for those of you listening on our podcast platforms, please stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Especial, which will have a deeper conversation with Congressman Walden about the mechanics of the all-important general election in November. See you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Hi, Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Our special guest this week, Greg Walden, Republican Congressman, 2nd District of Oregon. He was once the chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which made him one of the most powerful members in the entire United States Congress, House and Senate. He's a ranking member of that committee now, which still makes him very, very important. Uh, Congressman, great to have you back. We were having a conversation that I want to continue about the mechanics of the November election. It cannot be moved, correct? I believe that to be the case, yes. And you would not advocate for it being moved? No. No, I think that... I, I think that would be bad for the democracy and, and yeah, no, bad idea. So we have to figure this out. Yeah, I think so. And, 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 I, and, and what, what are your suggestions for that and how to think about that, if not vote by mail nationally? Well, I think states are capable of figuring this out. Um, now, you see in some of the primaries, they have delayed them. Um, you know, I, I, I would hope that they would have learned lessons from that on what worked and didn't. And I think we'll be in a much better shape um, come October into the first of November. Um, that's usually not, and I'm going to be careful here, not the traditional flu season, right? And, and not that this is, I'm not saying that, but um, if this behaves like, like other coronaviruses, that still should be a fairly decent window. Now, a lot of states have absentee voting, um, and they could open that up. Some are very restrictive. Part of why we went to vote by mail in Oregon for all elections is our clerks were, uh, we had a very open um, absentee voting uh, a threshold. You just said, I want to vote by absentee, and they sent you a ballot. We had 75% or so voting absentee. And so it was easy to transition to make it 100% vote by mail. But we had time to ramp up to that. But I think states could do that. A lot of them have early voting. A lot of them have absentee voting. Most do. And, and so I, I, I would leave it up as the Constitution generally prescribes that these elections should be run by the states. I don't want the feds running at all. Understood. And if we can vote during the Civil War, we ought to be able to vote during COVID-19. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you also about the uh, bill that was passed that you helped vote to pass, uh, phase three. 
how optimistic are you that that will be, if not enough, the kind of lifeline? I don't want to call it a stimulus. I think stimulus is a misnomer. We don't need to stimulate the economy. We need to save the economy. How successful do you hope it will be? And is there anything that you think, as you were participating in the drafting of it, was left out that needs to be thought of in the next iteration? Well, those are both really good questions. The first, um, you know, my wife and I were small business owners for 21 years. We were in small market radio broadcasting. I looked at what um, was put together there to help small businesses, the 7A SBA loan program. And if you keep, if you dedicate 75% of that loan to, to your, your payroll, keeping your people employed, while you also could use some of the money to uh, pay for your rent, for utilities, kind of the basics, that keeps people, workers together with employers, that unit together, which is critical. I look at that as an emergency bridge over this deep canyon that's been created to get you to the other side. Because if you do that through June 30th, keep people on your payroll and pay your bills through June 30th, then SBA will forgive uh, up to two and a half times your payroll costs of that loan. And the loan interest rate, I think they've set at half a percent. Now that's sort of the emergency bridge. Then there's a safety net under that bridge over this canyon, and that is the bump up in unemployment benefits for those who have lost their jobs. And the $600 a week increase from the federal government on top of whatever the state formula is, is again designed to be a safety net. And then on top of that, there's and that's six hundred. And that's that $600 per week, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So 2400 bucks a month. Um, and on top of that, we're sending uh, $1,200 to every individual making less than 75000 a year and 500 per kid. It phases out at, at I think, 99 and, uh, per person, 198 per couple, something like that. So we're, there's a cash infusion here. There's a safety net here. And then there's a bridge. And for bigger businesses, those with more than 500 employees, there is a tax credit to help pay for payroll and, and basically zero interest loans, very low interest cost loans. So that's all designed to see if that works to get us through this. We have to watch that carefully, but that's in a different in, in addition to the other funds we put forward. And then we're sending every state a minimum of 1.25 billion for un, unanticipated costs. We've got a hundred mil, billion in here for hospitals. I mean, you know, it, it's we're we're spending more in that bill, 2.2 trillion in that rescue package than it's ever been spent in a single bill in the history of our country. It is bigger than the budget that we fight over every year, which we still haven't uh, produced for this year. We haven't done the appropriations process for the next fiscal year. So there's another billion, three, four, whatever it is uh, that we're going to allocate. So uh, there's reason to kind of catch your breath here. Plus, oh, by the way, the Fed, Federal Reserve, is pushing $4 trillion out there with all these facilities for low interest loans. So it's a it's an unprecedented, globally unprecedented, I would argue, rescue package for small, medium, and large business and individuals and a safety net uh, along the way. Anything left out? Well, I would have done surprise billing. And uh, so consumers are going to the emergency room, don't get gouged. Um, with a bill not covered by their insurance. And I would have fully funded our community health centers for four or five years. Um, they shouldn't be on this short-term funding, which they've been on now for a year. It, it's hard for them to hire and maintain uh, personnel. It, it's, it's, it, it's Anyway, it's, it's not necessary, and there's broad bipartisan agreement to do it. All right. Uh, I have to ask you the three threshold questions we ask all of our guests, Congressman. So in no particular order, uh, most influential book in your life, uh, all time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're in if you're if you're indulging in a musical selection, which artist or genre would you find most indulgent? Well, let me let me start with book. You know, I remember as a middle schooler at church camp reading, pulling this book down off the library that, that's, that was called the, the Roosevelt's of Sagamore Hill. And I don't know why I picked that one. Um, and it was about Theodore Roosevelt. And I, I became a big Theodore Roosevelt fan as a result of reading that book. And just the respect he had for individuals, regardless of what they did in life, if they did it well. Uh, the reformer that he was, the conservationist that he was. I mean, he was willing to take on big interests and and uh, for the good of the American people. And, and so I, I would say that book, um, oh gosh, the, the, I don't know on movies. Uh, there are a lot of them. I, 
You know, I, I, I'm kind of a sucker. This will throw you off. Uh, I, my parents grew up in the Depression and went through World War II. And so I grew up watching some of those. And I got to tell you, one of the one of the funny ones is the South Pacific. I love the music and just that, that spirit <laughs> of World War II and, you know, crazy ribal stuff. Um, I think that one's kind of fun uh, from an old genre. And what was your third one? Music, artist oh, or genre. Uh, classic rock, classic rock. Bob Seger, Silver Bullet Band, Jimmy Buffett. I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan. Um, I, I I grew up on, I don't know why they call it classic major. That's for old people, but it's my music, classic rock. Uh, now, uh, Bob Seger definitely falls into the classic rock category. I think Jimmy Buffett falls into the oh, yeah. yacht rock category. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah but I, I've done more numbers with Jimmy Buffett in my ear. Um, but yeah. Jackson Brown. I, I like some of the old folk music. Uh, my wife's getting me to, to learn how to play the the uh, mountain dulcimer. I play a little piano and, um, you know, so we, we have a little fun with that. I, I think there's a lesson waiting for me uh, when this interview is over. I've, I've not done my daily uh, mountain dulcimer lesson, but uh, anyway. <laughs> well, far be it from us to interfere any longer with the mountain dulcimer <laughs> lesson of Congressman Greg Walden. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, sir. And in honor of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, a phrase that he uttered and is uh, one of his many, many, many quotable quotes uh, might be applicable to these times. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Yeah. Isn't that true? Congressman, it's been a pleasure. Good to be with you. Thanks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.